The following is an exclusive presentation of News Radio 680 WPTF and 98.5 FM. This is the Turning Your Life Around podcast, presented by 180 Counseling, hosted by founder Sarah Coates, a licensed clinical mental health counselor. In this podcast, Sarah and her team of therapists will dive deep into many topics on mental health care. Here's your host, Sarah Coates. Welcome to today's episode. We are discussing a sensitive topic today, and this discussion might be triggering for individuals with severe depression, self-harming behaviors, or suicidality. If you feel unsafe or a harm to yourself, please call 911 or the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. I'm here with my colleague, Brenna Arnold, a licensed clinical mental health counselor associate. Hi, Brenna. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me today. I'm so glad that you're here today to talk with me about a sensitive topic, but something that I think we do need to give voice to, especially in light of what's happening in 2020, the idea of suicide and suicidality. And I know this is one of your areas of expertise. So can you share with us a little bit about how you got into this line of work and how you came along to specialize in this area? Sure. Um, I think myself, along with many of the other clinicians out there, have very personal reasons for getting into the mental health field. You know, I had struggled with mental illness in the past and then I had an acquaintance in high school who actually did end up completing suicide Um, and I just remember being at this stage of identity development and career development and feeling a lot of guilt feeling a lot of overwhelm and just helplessness like oh I should have done something I should have known and I actually remember having a conversation with my youth pastor at the time and I was just feeling a lot of grief and he sat down he said okay well you can either let this pull you under or you can let it help you motivate to you to help others and I remember that conversation so clearly there were many other factors that sort of led along to my development in this career, one of which when I was in college and studying psychology in undergrad at Florida State University, I actually volunteered at 211 Big Bend. So shout out to my Tallahassee folks if you happen to be listening. I still miss it all the time. It was an incredible experience and one of the crisis counseling hotlines that I actually answered there for a few years was the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And then when I decided to move forward with my career and become a licensed clinical mental health counselor, that was always a specialty that stuck with me and that I have such a heart for. And so that's sort of the long story short about how I got here. Well, I'm glad that you're able to lend your expertise in this area. I think at least what I experience in my clinical practice as well is that suicide becomes a very taboo topic, almost like if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. Or if we do talk about it, it will prompt or create in somebody some ideas. But I guess the reality is people do think about it, whether we want to admit it or not. Uh, Whether we talk about it or not, or whether we sweep it under the rug, it is real. Suicidality or suicidal ideation does exist. And so I'm glad that we're talking about it today to kind of bring to the forefront this issue. So suicide maybe means something different to everyone right? Absolutely. I I like that you brought that up, especially in the times of 
2020 now, like the world is a chaotic place. There's a lot of collective trauma that is happening now that has been happening a while, for a while. You know, I'm specifically thinking of the Black Lives Matter movement and also with all of the anxiety and feelings of overwhelm and depression that are coming along with the global pandemic and countless other issues that are going on. So absolutely, I think when we th- when we hear the word suicide, at least in society, it's kind of this, oh, well, suicide, one, like you said, is this taboo topic, and it really only consists of someone who kills themselves on purpose. And that may be the simplified definition of it, but it is so much more than that. We all have our own suicide narratives, I guess you could say, scripts around that, you know, how society, how culture expects us to act in regards to suicide, whether it's um, culturally accepted to sweep it under the rug and not talk about it. I'm specifically thinking of Dr. Canetto's research on the permissiveness, is the word that she uses, of suicide of older white males specifically and why they're such a vulnerable population. You know, there's cultural um, factors including like the lethality of the weapons that are used it's maybe more acceptable to complete suicide versus me who is identifies as a white cisgender female right like things may be more acceptable for me to actually reach out and ask for help or use less lethal means because of what I see around me growing up. Kind of a, I don't want to say funny, but like a more lighthearted factor that I believe plays into my specific suicide narrative or what I think of when I think of suicide is, you know, growing up in high school in a predominantly white area, I had a lot of like-minded friends, you know, and kind of stuck around the people that I felt like listened to the same music and did the same things that I like. You know, I I listened to a lot of emo music. (laughs) I still do, by the way. So I am in no way making fun of it um post-hardcore music so there's a lot of I don't want to say celebration but celebration of reaching out and asking for help a lot of validity when it comes to feeling depressed feeling so depressed to the point where you want to kill yourself not that suicide is only a result of depression but that is a big piece of it Mm. and so kind of growing up I sort of had this mentality like yeah it's okay to ask for help and You know, sometimes I even have to check myself as a therapist, as a clinician, because sometimes I get that savior mentality, like, oh, I really do want to help because this is something I'm so passionate about and I love talking about. So that's kind of just an example. And then, you know, when we think about the intersectionality as Americans with different cultural identities, such as race, gender, I mean, we can't talk about the suicide rates without talking about veterans, Mm. without talking the LGBTQ plus population and the different risk factors in each of these populations. It's just can feel overwhelming when we talk about it like this and also empowering. It sort of gives people the voice. At least that is, you know, my goal and what I hope to kind of talk about today is to give people the sense that they can speak up and talk about what it is that means to them. I love that so much that you are lending a voice to all of those different populations of how they can speak up. I do think that just generationally, past generations did sweep this topic under the rug. And I mean, I myself found out probably just two years ago that my dad's grandfather completed suicide. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I mean, right. we, I mean, I was 40 something years old when I learned that. Mm-hmm. Nobody in my family had ever talked about that. And so I think in families, 
people do just sweep this under the rug and not openly have discussions. And that could have a huge impact on the mental health of anybody in our family, and even my children moving forward. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you are giving voice to this and allowing clients to give voice to this. Yeah, absolutely. And the sweeping under the rug phenomenon, I know we've used that several times, you know, at this point, there is also sort of this opposite concern going on right now with the glamorization of mental illness and of suicide specifically in pop culture. Mm. I mean, I Googled this the other day, and of course, different results are going to come up for different people depending on where you are, what your search history is, all that good stuff. But I I think I had searched suicide and pop culture and just like dozens of BuzzFeed articles came up about the concern for this. There is some research going on. I heard secondhand. So for my research audience out there, you know, this isn't anything that I was IRB approved or did the research myself or anything like that. But there is some research out there about the concern of Gen Z specifically, and I am in no way, please don't hear me as demeaning or calling out Gen Z in any way, because, you know, as a millennial, we have definitely had a lot of things talked about in my generation as well. (laughs) But there is this concern of this glamorization of suicide. I, for one, see this as a very reasonable response to what was taboo for so long and in many ways still is. Like, I'm tired of being quiet about this. My friends are dying. I want to speak out. But then you also have this pendulum switch of like, you know, I'm thinking of 13 reasons why and, you know, kind of this maybe less healthy way of depicting suicide as something that is brave, that is glorious and glamorous and even of like the completion of suicide itself I mean it's anything but that right like your body will do everything it can to stay alive and that Mm -hmm. is not pretty when you're in the middle of it versus you know some of these other you know pop cultural media that's kind of showing it in a different light so I think it's important to find that middle area to normalize and validate each person's individual unique ideas and suicide script and also find that middle ground of how can I validate you and explore these feelings around it and also what else can I put on the table to sort of keep you here so that you can get better. And I'm sure there's a lot of parents of the millennial generation or the Gen Z generation who they see that glamorization and then that's Mm -hmm. why they pull back and want to continue to perpetuate the taboo of talking about it because they're like, oh, stop glamorizing it. So we'll swing over here to this pendulum and we just won't speak about it. But there's gotta be the middle ground Mm -hmm. where we're talking about it in healthy ways, bringing it to the surface, And then helping people deal and cope with whatever is driving that suicidality or the suicidal ideation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so normal to have thoughts. I think we live in a society, one that usually either doesn't talk about it at all or condemns it or on the other side, kind of like you said, glamorizes, right? And of course, both are reasonable responses to the other. But when we think of suicide as more of a spectrum Mm. um, of, you know, not only of risk, of high to low risk, like how likely is somebody to actually go through with attempting and completing suicide, but also this spectrum that involves thoughts, thoughts of, of suicide, whether it's an intentional plan that is drawn out, to feelings about it. You know, I've, I have spoken with many clients and just people personally where suicide is more of 
a feeling, but like an identity too. Like it's this feeling of just being burdened, you know, um, maybe not putting words to actually wanting to complete or try to kill themselves, but it's something they've carried around for so long that it feels normal. Mm. And so I guess if you don't hear anything else, like what I really want to say is that it's so normal to be on the spectrum. And there are so many things that can affect that from the outside. That is not your fault. Like society, the people that you're around, some of the traumas that have happened to you, anybody is at risk of having suicidal thoughts or being on the spectrum at some point in their lives. And so hopefully if we can talk about it in this way, it's less scary to reach out, ask for help. And also the people that they're going to to ask for help can have a little bit more of an understanding where it doesn't feel, you know, like you're broken or something's wrong with you. Right, and I I think about my perspective as a clinician myself with parents who might bring me an adolescent and Mm. maybe the adolescent has expressed to the parent, I don't wanna live anymore or Mm. I just can't keep going on like this. And a lot of parents, which I can identify with, I'm a parent, you know, they they get really freaked out about those statements and I have to admit, as a parent, I would do the same. Um, Oh, yeah. Because it's your child. But on the same hand, a lot of times the adolescents don't actually mean they intend or plan to end their life. They're just struggling with so many of the things that are happening in their world. They don't want to keep struggling with that. Um, So I like when you mention about the spectrum, because just because somebody says, I don't want to keep going like this, doesn't mean they're they need to go to an inpatient hospital or be hospitalized, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, so you absolutely do have the the acute suicidal ideation that needs to be handled with emergency services. So there is a place for that. Mm. You know, if somebody, and I'll probably talk a little bit towards the end of today about some general risk factors and signs. You know, you don't have to be a clinician to to know how to look out for these types of things. And of course it varies from person to person. But with that being said, there are some individuals who, if we don't intervene swiftly and confidently, right? Like they may not be alive next time we see them to move forward. And so that's when we can bring in hospitalization and first responders um, and things like that. However, that can be pretty scary for folks, you know, and and I think I was actually just talking to my little sister about this a couple of weeks ago. It can be scary thinking that that's always is what is going to happen if you have suicidal thoughts. Even if you're at the higher end of the risk spectrum, quote unquote, there are other ways to help intervene with that. But I can absolutely see why it can be scary to reach out for help. As I mentioned, Erica, my little sister, was talking about all of these TikTok videos that are going out, and I am not on TikTok. So, Me either. You know, please, for those of you out there who are on, who are on I've, I've heard it's great. There are lots of really fun things to watch, but there are videos out there of saying, you know, I'm suicidal, I'm scared to tell my therapist, which I get, right? Because when you feel suicidal, oftentimes what can go along with that is feelings of not wanting to burden other people, right? So so here I am burdening someone else with my problems, even though that is their profession. There's feelings of loneliness and isolation. No one gets it, you know, and a lot of times there are almost like these two sides. Like there's the side that does want to die, right? Like there are good things about suicide. A lot of times it can be, well, I'm feeling trapped. This is a way out. I, I you know, I, I love having this like other option in case things go worse. And also when it comes to 
opening up about it, like there can be a fear of like, all I want is to get better. I don't want to go get locked up or go in a straight jacket. I've heard horrible things about hospitalization, which is not what happens. Right. But, you know, there is this this idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I get it, like being scared to talk to a professional about it, not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, I think that definitely comes to play with people not actually reaching out and verbalizing to their therapist or to their doctor or their loved one for fear of, like you just said, straitjacket, kind of jail-like kind of idea. And I wish most people could one day just take a tour of an inpatient hospital. There's so many great ones in our area. Oh, absolutely. And they're not like that. I mean, they're not the Holiday Inn either, but, <laughs> you know, it will. It, it is not as scary as you might see in movies and whatnot about a hospitalization. But that aside, um, I do think those kinds of ideas prevent people from reaching out. So this is interesting what you're talking about when it comes to TikTok, and I'm assuming it's young people and older putting Mm -hmm. out on TikTok that they don't want to talk about it, but they're suicidal and they're actually talking about it. So in a way, they're reaching out. Yes. Yeah. Which is why it's important that not only clinicians and therapists and clinical mental health counselors have knowledge about this because it is frightening to hear somebody that you care about or somebody that you know say, I'm feeling suicidal. I want to kill myself. There are other ways to voice that too. That one is one that tends to bring up a lot of emotions. Um, And I will just say as a professional, we are not immune to that either. Mm. Um, But if we if we kind of latch onto this idea of suicide as normal and suicidality when when I say this I mean to everything from suicide acts and attempts to thoughts and feelings all of that um, as a as a spectrum it can feel less scary you know and and I had mentioned acute suicide as something that you know where we do need to come in and act swiftly and confidently and all of those things but there are a lot of folks who I'm guessing are listening right now where they may identify as having more chronic Mm. suicidal thoughts and suicidal feelings that have just been there for a while. It becomes this sense of normal to be this way. Um, And who wants to go to, to somebody who doesn't get that, right? Because it kind of perpetuates that feeling of like, there's something wrong with me, there's something broken. And there is a difference, right? Just because somebody is feeling suicidal, like you said, doesn't mean that they're going to go through with it. Just because somebody is having thoughts and feelings or even just because somebody does attempt does not mean that there are other ways to reach out and support them apart from the scary idea of what happens when you do reach out for professional help. So I guess what I'm hearing too is if a client or, or a loved one or a family member does speak out and say, I have a plan, I want to die, then obviously that's more acute and someone needs to act swiftly. But then there are a lot of people who just have these passive suicidal thoughts, mm-hmm. passive suicidal ideation that might be more of a chronic problem. What, what do you do or what do you advise or how do you support your clients who might have more chronic suicidal ideation? So I personally, like in my own therapy room, this is kind of the way that I handle it. So if somebody mentions suicide in some way or another, and one of the first things I ever learned about assessing for suicide is somebody does not have to come out and say, I'm suicidal, I want to kill myself for them to be having these thoughts. A lot of times it's not that. It's kind of, I think you had mentioned this earlier, like 
oh, I don't really know how I'm going to go on or, you know, noticing certain risk factors that tend to be present, not all the time when somebody is feeling this way, like a sudden change in behavior. Maybe they're sleeping less than they were before. Maybe they've tried this new medication. They're isolating more. And then you have some folks who come and they're like, I want to kill myself. I have a gun at home. Like, you know, I have a specific plan on how to do it. And of course, those are going to be the acute. When it comes to the more passive suicidality, which for our listeners who don't quite know what passive suicidality means, right? It's this idea of, yes, I'm thinking about it, but I don't actually want to go through with it. Or there can be, you know, I am hurting myself on purpose, self-harm, right? Like this is separate from suicide without the intention of dying. However, there are some self-harm behaviors that are pretty lethal. And if somebody doesn't really know like how lethal it is, like they could still be at risk of dying. So um, this passive suicidality where somebody maybe doesn't want to die or it's on their mind, but they are at, you know, a high risk where swift hospitalization, for instance, would be necessary. Or for folks who have chronic suicidal ideation, where suicide is always on the table. Like, suicide is always going to be an option for me. If I think, who was it? I think it was Dr. Stacy Friedenthal does a lot of research on chronic suicidality. I had just attended a summit and she spoke at it. And she was referencing somebody, and for the life of me, I cannot remember who it was, but they basically said, like, suicide is always an option for me. Like, I will always have that on the table. But if you take it away from me and and she she said you know I will never kill myself unless you take that option away from me so the approach that I take is one doing a thorough risk assessment like seeing what the level of care is that's needed if it's appropriate to maintain you know regular outpatient visits I'm just going to hold the space for you right like you are allowed to have whatever thoughts you want you are allowed to feel suicidal my hope is to show up in a way that is warm and understanding and non-judgmental and to give you space to have all of those feelings, right? And to, to explore, like, tell me what's good about it. What, what is the good thing about killing yourself? What makes you want to do it, right? What are the feelings that go along with that? Validate that. And then also eventually moving to a point in treatment where like, what are some other options we can also put on this table so that that's not your only one, right? Like nobody wants just one coping skill or one option. And also like, if this is your only option and you're dead, like we can't get better. So, you know, just holding that space, allowing someone to come in and feel non-judgmental and not being afraid to talk through it and, and what suicide means to them. And I think we all need that in one way or another with different needs that we have. So why should suicide and suicidality be any different? You're listening to the Turning Your Life Around podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Coates, and I'm talking with Brenna Arnold about suicide and suicidality. So let's talk about the difference of suicidal ideation and thoughts versus actions or behavior. Oh, this is so important, and I'm so glad that you asked this, Sarah. Um, I think I had mentioned at the beginning, we kind of live in a society that is polarized when it comes to suicide in general, like when I'm talking about American society. Um, You know, there's either this taboo, like don't talk about it, kind of perpetuating this notion that you're abnormal or broken if you do have these thoughts or desires, or this glamorization, um, this contagion effect, right? Like we know the research says if somebody you know, kills themselves as somebody is suicidal, um, especially if you're close to that person, like the people around them who may already be at risk 
you know, it can tend to go up a little bit, mm. right? So we live in a society that says, right, like either you keep it to yourself or you are just wanting attention, mm. right? Especially as like a female, I can say that, right? Like I heard that a lot. Like if you if you get emotional, you know, if you um, say these things, like you are just being dramatic, you know, you just want attention. And like, why is a call for help, one, stigmatized, right? And that's something I really like to advocate. But so aside from that, right, when we talk about the difference between suicidal thoughts and actions, just because you're having thoughts doesn't mean you have to act on them, right? So we, I guess as clinicians, kind of this is ingrained in us from the time we go to school, right? Like emotions and thoughts are not facts, right? Like you are allowed to have whatever feelings you want. It doesn't mean that they're a permanent reflection or of reality, um, they tend to pass. So moving away from this idea of, you know, either you don't talk about it at all and you suffer alone or you do something about it. And I'm here to say like, there are other options where, like, Kind of like I mentioned before, you're allowed to have whatever thoughts you want, but just noticing them almost, and for those of you out there who kind of know what mindfulness means, right? It's being able to be present in the moment and not try to change things or be judgmental of things. Thinking about that way when you think about your suicidal thoughts, right? Like allowing them to come, allowing yourself to feel whatever it is you need to feel, allowing that to do whatever, and then sort of just wash away, and then seeking out people and professionals and resources that you trust to make you feel validated to talk about it can be another option besides suffering in silence or actually attempting. And, and I think part of talking about this today is to help encourage people they don't have to suffer in silence. Yes. So what are some common risk factors? So in general, some common risk factors, the first ones that come to mind, like specifically stating that I want to die or I want to kill myself or I feel suicidal. Um, it can also be more passive verbalizations, kind of, it can be really common to say something like, oh, I just don't know if I can do this anymore and sort of feel out the room because you want to feel like this person is going to not do anything you don't want to do and respect you and validate you and not make you feel crazy. So there's that verbally stating something along those lines. Also access to weapons. I believe the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention states, I want to say it's like right at 50%, 50 point something of suicide deaths are a direct result of guns. So, you know, guns are a big one and you hear about that a lot. And there are also other weapons, quote unquote, mm -hmm. to use. So access to medications that maybe aren't prescribed or are prescribed all at once so that it's easy to overdose. Along those lines, drug and alcohol use tends to lower inhibitions. Even if somebody is maybe on the lower end of the risk spectrum, they're more passive having access to that can sort of lower the inhibition and make the risk higher in that moment when they're using or when they're in a withdrawal state, that type of thing. Also like stating a specific plan. Yeah. That was kind of like suicide 101. If somebody has a specific plan, you need to do something right. quick. Saying like, this is the time I'm gonna do it. This is the weapon I'm gonna use. Suicide letters, maybe sending texts or things and, and talking in a way that really isn't normal or to them, like if you know somebody really well and they start having an uh, abrupt change in behavior in the way that they talk. I think I mentioned like sleeping less, isolation, 
all of those things. And then you have the different risk factors from different cultures. I'm thinking of as a someone who identifies as white and cisgendered, it's like maybe a little bit, and also in the mental health field, it is way less stigmatized for me to reach out for help. There are other communities and ethnicities where it's like, you know, maybe more communal. And so, you know, you want to reach out to family instead of a professional, which is a fantastic resource if you have a supportive family. So for folks who maybe do exist or live in a more communal cultural background or family and like a family member has died, like that might make them more at risk. So there are so many ways to kind of see this. And the one thing that I want to say for our folks out here who are not licensed, we're not clinicians, we're not professionals. It is by no means your responsibility to assess how high of a risk somebody is at. If you want help, there are resources out there. We always say this to professionals too, like don't take this responsibility on yourself. Involve family, involve professionals, call the suicide hotline. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is a great website. They have a lot of resource listed there, like the Crisis Text Line. The Trevor Project for the LGBTQ plus population has um, a number there. And then the Veteran Suicide Hotline, which when you call the National Suicide Hotline and press one, it'll take you directly there. The SAMHSA website, the Substance Abuse the Mental Health Association website. They have a lot of like local resources of places you can go to help. And then of course, 911. So if you are like, let's say you're somebody who you're concerned about a loved one and you're worried that they might actually go through with attempting or completing suicide and you don't remember any of these resources, like that's okay, you can still call 911, right? Like that is an option, even though it's not always the most glamorous one, it is one that will keep them alive for a little longer to get access to more longer term care. So that's that's kind of like the main ones that I think of. So I also just before we wrap up today, I wanted to say a little something for the folks out there who have had a loved one or someone that they know die from suicide. Suicide at the end of the day, you know, we were talking about all of this, oh, we need to do better. We need to create all these safe spaces. It's still an option for some folks. And a lot of times that's just, it's not anything you could have done. And so I just wanted to say one, if you are somebody who this has happened to you, it's not your fault. There are resources out there for you, for family members, for friends, those of you who know somebody who has died from suicide, that there's support for you as well. Well, Brenna, I just thank you so much for being candid, for giving a voice to those individuals who are struggling with suicidality and and ideation, uh, chronic suicidality. So I just appreciate you being such an expert in this area and being willing to talk about it and not keeping it taboo and prepared perpetuating the stigma associated with it. So thanks so much for joining us today. And I know our listeners will greatly benefit from this information. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Turning Your Life Around podcast presented by 180 Counseling with five triangle locations to serve you. Learn more at 1-80counseling.com. This has been an exclusive presentation of News Radio 680 WPTF and 98.5 FM, a Curtis Media Group station.